Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and you're listening to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. And I have our Bay team here today. I have Maria Eskinka in the room. What's up, Maria? Hi, CG. Good morning. And then I have our senior editor, Alan Montecilio, here as well. What's up, Alan? Hello. And now it's time for our monthly news roundup. This is a new segment that we actually just started where each member of the Bay team brings one story that they have been following this month. We're going to start doing this the last Friday of every month, and that's what we're bringing you today. And I'm actually going to go ahead and kick it off for us today. Um, Mine is actually an update to a story that we did on the Bay out of Martinez. This is sort of an update to that. Uh, There was a meeting earlier this week between Contra Costa County health officials and Martinez residents that I think really highlights the sort of ongoing dissatisfaction and also mistrust after the local refinery released what turned out to be heavy toxic metals into the air known as spent catalyst. And this meeting, which happened earlier this week, I think is just another blip uh, sort of in this story. Yeah, this has been kind of a long running saga for residents of Martinez at this point. Residents still don't feel like they have answers from what happened last, I think, Thanksgiving it was. Yeah, totally. Thanksgiving morning, residents of Martinez basically woke up, walked outside of their homes and found this like fine white dust just coated over their cars and their homes and their front lawns. And it really shook people in part because no one knew really what it was until really a few months later when the county told people not to eat the food from their gardens. This meeting that we're talking about today is kind of about the results of a toxicology report that Contra Costa County has released actually back in June that showed that there were no apparent long-term impacts of the spent catalyst release. This meeting, though, I think really was an effort by the county to kind of, as uh, Will McCarthy from the East Bay Times put it, is sort of an effort to extend an olive branch to the community, kind of give them space 
to air their frustrations. And it was really one of the first times that the county and the residents got to really sit face to face and talk about the results of this toxicology report. Is there um, a sense of how the public is feeling now? Because I do feel like there's been a lot of back and forth and a lot of trust that has maybe been tarnished after this. Yeah, I think that's that's really what this story is about. You know, I think Contra Costa County health officials and maybe even uh, folks at the refinery might have hoped that the results of this toxicology report would sort of put people at ease a little bit. You know, this idea that or this finding that there's no long term health hazard. But the community still has a lot of questions. One important fact here is that the Martinez refinery didn't actually notify public health officials about the spent catalyst release until days later, which is why it kind of took so long for residents to really even know what had happened. Um, So there's still a lot of mistrust around that as well. And there were also some people who were really skeptical about the results of the toxicology report itself, raising questions about when and where exactly uh, health officials did this testing, the fact that it was likely days after the initial release, that people had probably been breathing this in and not even knowing it. And so how can we really know yet uh, what the impact is? And I actually have a clip from the meeting that I think kind of gives a sense of the mood there. Our concern is why we weren't notified when it first happened and why CCH wasn't notified when it first happened so that we could bring in our animals and make sure that our families weren't outside breathing this. I think what interested me about this story is that I think this is going to be really an ongoing effort by both the refinery, but also the county and local officials to really regain the trust of residents of Martinez who have since this uh, November incident and as we discussed in our episode of the Bay on this topic, have since like really organized around this effort to hold the refinery accountable. Well, that was my story. Maria, I want to go to you. What have you been watching and following in the month of September? Yeah, so a story that sort of popped out to me was a story about how California is getting really close to decriminalizing mushrooms and other psychedelics. I'm thrilled. This has been a three-year process working uh, with our coalition of combat veterans and, and firefighters and health professionals. Senator Scott Weiner introduced SB 58, and it's on its way to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk to be signed. He has until October 14th to sign it into law, and if he does, then it would be decriminalized in the whole state of California. Now, when we say mushrooms and psychedelics, I mean, that encompasses a large range of, of drugs. So like, what, what specifically are we talking about here? It would specifically decriminalize about five different ingredients. Psilocybin, psilocin, DMT, mescaline, and ibogaine. Uh, The bill only applies to people 21 and older. 
Two of those are the active ingredients in psychedelic mushrooms. And then there's these other ingredients like mescaline and DMT, also known as ayahuasca. They're all plant-based ingredients, so none of this is um, synthetic or produced in a lab. Um, and also, when we're talking about decriminalizing, this doesn't mean that it's, it's um, authorized to sell. It doesn't mean that... You know, now, like, you might be able to go to the store and buy uh, mushrooms. It just means that people cannot be arrested um, if they've consumed them, and specifically people over the age of 21. I am curious, Maria, if this was a controversial debate at all in the legislature. I feel like when we talk about decriminalizing certain drugs, it's usually a pretty big debate. It was sort of a divisive um, bill. So in the Senate, it passed 21 to 14. In the Assembly floor, it passed 41 to 11. So, you know, for it, you had people like, obviously, like Senator Scott Weiner, um, people that maybe want to decriminalize drugs. There was also like some army vets who were for this because they said that it has helped them treat their PTSD. One of those people was Jason Moore Brown. He's an army vet who treated his PTSD with hallucinogenics, and he testified about this. As hard as the last 15 years have been on my family and me, I consider myself fortunate. Many of my brothers and sisters have succumbed to the darkness, never having found the therapeutic benefit of the plant medicines this bill will decriminalize. And then also the people that are against it, um, Coalition for Psychedelic Safety and Regulation, specifically voices like Lisa Hudson, um, a Bay Area mom who testified against it because her son passed away while under a hallucinogenic. I've personally experienced the devastating consequences of psilocybin and believe it would be dangerous and irresponsible. I think the voices that were for and against this on both sides of this issue had some very strong um, sentiments about it. And even that, it seems like that was the case, even though, even as the bill was already kind of narrowed, right? Because I know Senator Weiner has had an interest in decriminalizing other psychedelics, including uh, MDMA, including LSD. But this is, this seems like a very specific set of ingredients that really helpful to treating mental health conditions. It seems like that was the main argument that was able to sway enough people to get this through. Yeah, so I think he tried to in introduce a similar bill before and it failed. And so I think this is the sort of revised version of this. Um, and I think part of it is specifically focusing on these like plant-based ingredients. But this would also be for therapeutic purposes. So part of the bill requires the Health and Human Services Agency to study the ther therapeutic use of psychedelics and submit a report. So that part of it was definitely a factor in this. And I think that helped sway enough of people that were like on the fence about it. I think that emphasis on the therapeutic effects of psychedelics and also like the specific ingredients, like being really specific about what is being decriminalized here is what kind of allowed this to maybe get that push and needed to finally get approved. Is there anything to be said about these larger efforts to kind of undo what we saw in the 90s at the height of the war on drugs? Is this sort of seen at all as as part of that effort? I think that's definitely a part of this. I think some of the 
groups that favored this were definitely criminal justice reform folks that support any effort to decriminalize drugs as part of this larger effort to stop the incarceration of people. Um, so that, I think that was definitely like an argument that was made in here, but I don't think it was the driving force behind this bill necessarily. That was producer Maria Esquinka. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk with senior editor Alan Montecilio about a very exciting story that he's got. Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And last but not least, our basketball-loving Senior editor Alan Montecilio, what do you got for us? Well, you're giving it away. I mean, <laughs> I, shocking no one, my, the story I've picked is about basketball. Earlier this week, Marcus Thompson with The Athletic reported that the Golden State Warriors are very, very close to securing a deal with the WNBA that would bring a professional women's basketball team to the Bay Area. Now, this isn't official, uh, but this news made, you know, huge waves nonetheless. Who exactly is behind this and, and why bring a WNBA team to the Bay? When I say the Warriors, I mean, you know, specifically the ownership group that owns the Warriors and Joe Lacob, who's the majority owner of the team. It's pretty common for NBA teams to be very financially involved with the WNBA. The NBA actually bankrolled the founding of the WNBA in the mid-90s. So it's not uncommon for sports owners to be involved in multiple teams and in some cases owning both the NBA team and the WNBA team in a particular market. As to why the Bay Area and why Joe Lacob, I mean, I think Joe Lacob himself actually has a pretty long history of supporting women's sports. There was a sort of now defunct women's league in the 90s called the American Basketball League. Lacob was a big part of that. He actually owned a team in that league called the San Jose Lasers. Hmm. And I think it's sort of been known in sports circles that he's been interested in potentially uh, getting involved here and bring, helping bring in a WNBA team to the region. 
Now as to why the Bay Area, besides lack of interest in it, I mean, I think there's a big interest in women's sports in this region. You can see that happening in other areas as well with Bay FC, the new, uh, new professional women's soccer team, the Oakland Soul. There's actually never been a WNBA team in the Bay Area. And so I think there's a feeling among lots of people that, hey, this is a pretty, this would be a pretty ripe market for, for a team like that. To, to have this WNBA team, the highest level of women's basketball in the Bay is special. And, and I'm really excited about it. Our colleague, Sydney Johnson, called up several women coaches in the Bay Area. One of them was Charmin Smith, who is the head coach of uh, Cal's women's basketball team. And, you know, she just talked about how right off the bat, you know, she and her staff were, were just getting excited about it. Our staff has been texting. You know, we're all just, as I mentioned, just really excited. I know that it's something that our players are going to be thrilled about as well. I am curious when we say the Bay Area, where in the Bay Area, which city exactly is going to get this team is going to is going to, I guess, get repped on the (laughs) on the jerseys. I think that's the part of this conversation where it could get a little, uh, I don't know what to say, contentious, controversial. Uh, According to Thompson's reporting, the plan would be for a future WNBA team to play its games at Chase Center in San Francisco, which is where the Warriors play, but that it would be, and I'm quoting from the article, headquartered in Oakland, where the Warriors practice facility uh, also is. Now, I don't really think fans will care where a team is headquartered. I think when you say a team is from a specific place, you are specifically referring to where it plays. Right. You know, Lacob wasn't the only person interested in starting a team. There have been people in Oakland who have been very clear that they would love to have a WNBA team in Oakland. If, in fact, the WNBA goes with Lacob's ownership group, I think that would really be a disappointment to some of the folks in Oakland who are specifically hoping that a team would be rooted there. Do we get a timeline? Like, when when might we we know? Well, nothing's nothing's been confirmed, so we wouldn't know for sure until any deal would be finalized. The WNBA commissioner had said previously that her goal was to have an expansion team in 2025. So it would still be a minute, but that's also, you know, plenty of time to drum up buzz if it is happening. The Warriors spokesperson Raymond Ritter told uh, KQED, and it seems like telling, giving everyone the same statement, quote, we have had productive conversations with the WNBA and look forward to the possibility of being a part of the league expansion plans. However, it would be premature to assume any potential agreement has been finalized. So the Warriors are being very careful to say this is not official. We are talking with the WNBA about this. But, you know, th- this news getting out has already created a lot of buzz in the Bay Area. How are you feeling about this this news? I mean, I think it's really exciting. I think just, you know, observing from the outside, there's been an uptick of interest in women's sports, both in terms of attendance, but also I think marketing. I think there's been a lot more willingness from people and companies with a lot of money to put real dollars behind promoting women's sports, whether it's the networks, whether it's brands. I think people who've been invested in women's sports for a very long time would say, we've never actually had the opportunity to showcase women's sports to the country in a real way because no one's been willing to put actual dollars behind it. So I think that's been changing in the last few years. And certainly, if you take it in context with other new or new-ish women's sports teams in the region, like Bay FC and the Oakland Soul, I think there's a lot of potential for it to take off. Well, I'm definitely among 
be very excited about this. Well, Alan and Maria, thank you so much again for sitting down with me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, The Bay is made by me, Maria Esquinka, and Alan Montecilio. Shout out as well to the rest of the podcast team here at KQED. That's Jen Chien, our director of podcasts. Katie Springer, our podcast operations manager. We get audience engagement support from Cesar Saldana. And Holly Kernan is our chief content officer. The Bay is a production of member-supported KQED. I'm Erica Cruz-Guevara. Peace. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 